I think that might be the perfect way to end this episode. Legit. <laughs> oh my gosh. End it with the mic drop. I literally have chills. I'm freezing. <laughs> I was supposed to say, do you need a blanket? I'm like, I'm actually, my teeth are chattering. <laughs> no, that's so beautiful, Noelle. There's a lot to life, and we're figuring it out because who knows? We don't. I'm Jack. And I'm Jonah, and this is the podcast of our crusade to be at least mediocre at everything. Today we're going to be chatting with Noelle, who is a international relations superstar, who worked on the Mayor Pete Buttigieg campaign, presidential campaign, worked on the Biden campaign, and is an all-around rock star. So thank you so much for being here, Noelle. We are so appreciative. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here with you guys, virtually. Virtually. <laughs> but we're excited. We're excited. We have so many questions for you. First of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um. All right. So a little bit about myself. Uh, I am originally from Seattle. Um, Jonah and I, our moms, are best friends from childhood. So Jonah has known me longer than I think most people on the planet. Um, but I grew up in Seattle and then moved to New Jersey for school, where I went to Seton Hall for international relations and modern languages. So I studied Spanish, French, and Arabic, in addition to my international relations degree. And then did a couple of interning things with organizations surrounding the UN. And then after I graduated, I moved down to South Carolina to immediately join the Pete Buttigieg campaign as a field and community organizer. And then after that Pete camp or after Pete dropped out, um, in April, I joined the Organizing Together 2020 PAC, which was a PAC organizing against Donald Trump, but technically not the Democrats. Um, and then I jumped to the Biden campaign and then was working in Miami until the end of the election uh, on the Biden campaign or as a regional organizing director, managing a team of like eight to 10 field organizers of what I was doing during the Pete campaign. Florida, Florida. It was beautiful. It was really, really a cool place to be. Nice. You don't hear that often about Florida, so. <laughs> Just kidding. Florida's awesome. Wow. Well, yeah, I've known Noelle since she was a little baby. I held you in my arms. And it's so wild to recognize how successful you are and how awesome and you know, the, the awesome person that you've grown to be. So I am so excited to just be speaking with you today as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. What drew you to working in policy? Um, well, originally for IR policy, I was in, or I joined the Model UN team back in high school. I can't remember whether it was a, just a friend that was like, hey, I think this is a club you were interested, you, you would be interested in, or that I saw a Parks and Rec episode and about all about Model UN and thought, that sounds cool. I think my high school has a team for that. I might as well join that. I joined, I went to my first conference, absolutely fell in love. And I was the president of my high school and collegiate team. And I was just so enamored with the work I was doing that I knew I wanted to do that for a living. Wow. Well, that's really cool. I also love that Parks and Rec could have been like the uh the reason why you are in in public service and, and all that kind of stuff Le leslie nope would be very very proud <laughs> yeah i actually met her no <gasps> stop yeah, it yeah i met her at a un fundraiser in 2018 and i was like hi leslie nope <laughs> going to public service <laughs> She's she was like, like walking out the door. She was she's like, like, that's like, great. Bye. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I love that. Uh, <laughs> I became a mailman because of Doug Heffernan from King of Queens. So I'm with you. <laughs> I might not be doing the Lord's work, but, and I'm not a mailman anymore, but I, I'm with you. TV uh, definitely <laughs> shows us the way. Mm -hmm. 
saying. That's awesome. Well, that's cool that, you know, you found your way. Leslie Nope helped you. And that's amazing that you even met her. I have a quick question uh, or I have a quick statement to everybody here, including the listeners. I'm dumb when it comes to this stuff. And so I really don't understand a lot of what foreign and, you know, international relations versus domestic relations would be. Can you kind of give me a, a relations for dummy quick info, infograph, please? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think when it comes to international policy, a lot of people forget get I guess when they're focusing on domestic policy that international policy is basically all of the domestic policy in any given country plus all of the other countries so it's basically talking about what's going on in your own country with everyone else and how to basically ask other countries to change what they're doing in their own countries and that definitely goes both ways um Right now, at the forefront of international policy, like the big things are really like nuclear policy. So um, Russia, you go back to Nixon with like the START treaties, which have really been in the news right now because they're kind of at their expiration point. And then climate change is huge because obviously you can't tackle climate change without cooperation from everyone across the world. And it's going to take everyone to do that. And then think um my favorite thing about international policy is really the sustainable development goals so everything it really kind of encapsulates to me everything that's important in foreign policy so there's oh my gosh 17 goals goes from everything from partnerships to climate change to justice and nutrition and the water everything like that it really an infrastructure which to me is like the most slept on policy thing of anything. I love talking about infrastructure. Uh, so I think, yeah, if you look up the sustainable development goals, all 17 of those, those are really the best way to kind of tackle what everyone else is talking about. Okay. Awesome. So in, so the way that I understand this is, you know, international policy is basically in layman's terms, figuring out how we can all work together to meet a global goal. Yes. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Okay. I'm, I'm obsessed. I'm now going to go into international relations as well. So thank you. I'm following <laughs> in your footsteps, Noel. <laughs> yes. Love it. That's so funny. Um, this is, and thank you so much for answering that one. Yeah. I, I, I felt sort of dumb because I, I know what it is, but you know, I, I wasn't 100% sure. So thank you. Yeah, I totally get that. Because so it's like so encapsulating of everything that it's kind of like, well, what is it really? You know? Yes. Because it's so much at the same time. Yeah, yeah. It's like international relations sounds so distant. And, you know, I'm just like, okay, that sounds so big that it seems intimidating. And then I'm also curious, and uh, just, just a quick aside, as far as the folks who focus solely on domestic issues, mm -hmm. you know, what's the big difference that you have found in voters or people who focus solely on domestic issues versus more of like a cohesive international, you know, relations standpoint? This is probably going to be like one of my hottest takes ever. Um, <laughs> but I, it's something that I see really from the most progressive people and then the most conservative people, like to me, this is like where it kind of comes full circle for both sides mm -hmm. is that both a lot of people think that turning inwards and only focusing on ourselves will help them achieve what they want. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like they forget that any choice, especially within the United States that we make and our government makes has repercussions for other countries. Yes. And, uh, like it has consequences other places in the United States. Interesting. Yeah. So, so you're saying like basically hardcore uh, progressive folks and then hardcore conservative folks both focus mainly on like domestic stuff versus, you know, how we can all get all, like get together. Uh, I don't know if it's like a, a blanket for the for everyone. But if you go deep into like the Twitter world, if you're finding like the most loud 
people on both sides, they're going to be saying kind of like some, to me, when it comes mm-hmm. to international relations, they're kind of saying Got similar it. things. And like, that definitely doesn't mean they're talking the same things on policy, but like oh. at the end of the day, it kind of simmers down to like, we need to focus on ourselves. Oh, okay. I hear you. And I agree. I'm with you on that hot take. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So on a campaign, I actually really don't know what you do on a campaign. So what, what, what are you typically doing? What are some of the job duties? Yeah. Um, so for the Pete campaign, it was a little bit different because I was not virtual. <laughs> the campaign was really in person <laughs> because it was pre-pandemic. So I was a field and community organizer, which meant I was like planning. Oh my gosh. I think I planned 189 different events during that period of time when I was working on the campaign where I would meet with voters, talk about different policy platforms, go to other community events that I didn't necessarily plan just to interact with the community, say like, hi, the people to judge campaign exists here. I would love to help answer your questions and just kind of make yourself known in the community and be an active member of the community, I think is really the most important thing of that a field organizer can do is make yourself a resource to everyone in the community. We also train volunteers on how to do other <laughs> voter outreach. So basically treat, train them to be extensions of ourselves to talk about the campaign, talk about policy, talk about uh, answer people's questions, maybe if they're on the fence or undecided or leaning or thinking about voting for someone else where you're convincing them to vote for our candidate, Um, knocking on doors, making a lot of phone calls. Yeah, a lot of community events. Like rallying the people together, convincing them this is why you should vote for so-and-so. Exactly. Yes. You have your elevator pitch. You have your 30-second spiel to be like, hi, this is why you should vote for and care about and look into this candidate. But I also learned, like, at Nordstrom, I worked on commission. So one of the Mm. really important things at Nordstrom was you don't want things to come in as a return. So you don't want to sell something to someone that they don't want, that they're going to return because it still comes out of your sales at the end of the day. So it's like you didn't never sell, sold in the first place. Hmm. And to me, that was really similar with the campaign because it was like, well, you want to make sure you answer all of their questions so they're not second guessing themselves. So another campaign worker from somewhere else can't come up and be like and convince them to vote for their candidate. Like you want to make sure that everyone in the situation is sure and positive about that situation. Mm-hmm. That makes so much sense. Do you feel yeah. like you have to be a, a total expert on every single platform or can you kind of just go on the fly a little bit and you have resources? Mm, good question. Def- I, I think a little bit of both, like a good campaign, like especially the peak campaign really trained us to kind of, to know our resources. We had, you know, flyers on flyers on flyers and, they, we called them palm cards. They're basically postcards, but on the back, they would have like quick bullet points of different policy platforms. I know the Elizabeth Warren organizers were definitely drilled about that kind of stuff. If you want to be a good organizer, like I know that me and my team, we really kind of took it to heart and we wanted to know all the policies. And we did. We we read through all of them. Anytime a new one came out, we were like, oh, got to study up. I wouldn't say it wasn't necessarily a requirement, but at the same time you have so many voters asking you questions about them all the time Mm -hmm. and you don't want to lie to anyone and you don't want to be like oh i don't know that but let me get back to you because you may never see them again yeah yeah so you want to be able to be prepared although you know we never knew everything so like there were times where i was like okay like i really genuinely don't know let me like try and look it up on my phone before this person walks away but we don't know everything (laughs) yeah because there were yeah. lots of policies. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah, that's like asking to know the encyclopedia. Yeah. Which you, which you should know, Noel. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and you brought up something interesting where like, so do you think that different um, candidates have different expectations of their staff? Yes. Interesting. definitely had different expectations of organizers. I mean, technically we all had different titles. Like, hmm. I think for like some of us are field organizers some are like political organizers some are a community organizer some are just organizers some are digital organizers you know like there's a plethora of like official names that most campaigns could 
call that kind of person that's out in the field and talking to voters every day. Like it can be, you know, one of a million different names. Hmm. And everyone had a really different training program. I feel like the Pete campaign just did an absolutely phenomenal, like unbelievable, incredible job of training us and like helping us be prepared for any kind of situation. I felt extremely prepared for any situation that I kind of walked into. There were very few times where I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I mean, I obviously I can't really speak to other campaigns, but everyone trains and drills their organizers on different things and prioritizes different things. So, I mean, like, so one campaign could, for example, really prioritize door knocking. Like, I know the Better Work campaign really prioritized knocking doors in South Carolina. Like, they started knocking doors months before we did. Wow. And we were like, are we supposed to be knocking doors? And they were like, no, it's 90 degrees in South Carolina. Other campaigns are knocking doors, but we're not going to. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously we did knock a lot of doors, but we were knocking them as early as other campaigns. Hmm. Wow. That's interesting. I mean, it makes sense because if everybody had the same tactics, there would be no, <laughs> like all the campaigns would probably look very similar. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone definitely has very different strategies, which was definitely not up to me. Like to, it was very like levels and levels and levels above us. And they were just like, Hey, do this thing. We were like, yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> So we're the, we're the foot soldiers for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. How do you, how do you get a job on a presidential campaign? Yeah. I mean, I think it really depends on what you want to do on that presidential campaign. If you want to work in like an HQ and help do press releases or be like a press secretary for presidential campaign, a lot of those people will like work in a congressional office or like on the Hill, they'll do internships and like they'll like all of our backgrounds in journalism, stuff like that. But it, then it really becomes like, you have to like climb the ladder and then you jump onto the campaign, but you really want to jump on like early. I think with campaigns, sometimes it's almost like betting because you really have to, you know, put all of your heart and soul into hopefully picking the right person. That's going to go all the way because especially like the people that stuck with Biden all the way back from Iowa were in higher places by the end of the campaign than they were when they started. Um, just because when the campaign grows and grows and grows, you have to promote people and, you know, the people that are there longest and the people with the most experience with that team usually get promoted. That's not always the case, but it is sometimes kind of like luck and on who you pick. But for organizing, it's similar. You are kind of picking the luck of which candidate you want to go with. Then honestly, the way I got started with the campaign, oh gosh, I had met someone at a UN conference a couple of years prior. And I found out that they had joined the campaign and I had just found out about Pete and read his book. And I was like, wow, this is my candidate. This is my guy. So I was already in South Carolina at that point. So I went to the Clyburn Fish Fry, which is held by now Democratic Whip, Majority Whip, uh, mm. Jim Clyburn. Mm -hmm. And he basically hosts this huge fish fry every, I think it's just every four years for every presidential cycle. And all of the like presidential candidate hopefuls come and they basically do their stump speech for South Carolina. Hmm. Hold on. Are we talking frying actual fish or is this like a political term? It no, it's actual fried fish. Okay, thank you. I yeah. was like nodding my head like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Okay, great. Yep, Sorry, definitely. keep going. <laughs> it's like a it's it's like a barbecue. Oh. Yes, exactly. It's just like a big barbecue. It's a kickback with all the senators. I love it. All right, sorry, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're fine. It was really cool. Um, there were 22 presidential candidates at that point. Holy in time. cow! So all of them, except for Pete, was there that night. And Pete had dropped out last minute because of what had happened in South Bend, and that was the night before. So I went there, and I had found online on the Pete website that they were going to have volunteers like passing note cards out and like passing stickers out and volunteering. So I was like, okay, great. I'll sign up to volunteer. And turns out that I had just sent in my resume pretty recently to work on the campaign. 
And the person that I was volunteering for was then became my supervisor. So like a week later, I got a call and they did my interview and they were like, you did such a great job volunteering. Um, we're going to bring you on the team. So then I started pretty soon after that. That's awesome. So I would say like, if anybody wants to get on a presidential campaign, like if you ask most organizers, most original campaign staffers, it's, they started because they started volunteering. Mm, good advice. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I think I was under the impression that anybody working on a campaign had to be politically educated or, you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. have a degree in something related to politics, but I think it can be more than that. Like social workers and community or as community organizers and whatnot. Yeah. And I think those are the strongest people. A lot of the times is yeah. because when they get into politics, politics or I mean onto campaign work people like that have so much in, invested in things that are not the campaign they're not looking at it as what's my next move they're looking at it as I am joining in my own state in my own community to organize my friends and family for something that I care about yeah absolutely As far as choosing Mayor Pete, what drew you to him specifically? So my now husband had read Pete's book and found out from some other, like some other people in his unit about Pete. And they were like, hey, there's this guy running for president who was also in the military and he he did something like kind of similar to us. So they found out about his book. They read his book. And then he was like, Noel, you got to read this book. And I was like, okay, never heard of this guy. Never heard of South Bend, Indiana. Who is this guy? Pete Buttigieg. Never mm-hmm. heard of him. Read the book. Was just floored. I was like, wow, this is one of the most intelligent things I've ever read. This wow. guy is just unbelievably smart. Um, and that was slightly before he had announced his run for presidency. But like everyone... Mm. It was one of those weird moments where I've never really understood, like, everyone knows someone's running for president, but they haven't said they're running for president. Didn't know that he wasn't running yet. But then when he did announce, I was like, okay, this is the guy I'm going to vote for. I was just so impressed by the way that he spoke about issues and he really did kind of bring an international lens to so much. And I thought having a young person who understood the complex nature of how everything works together Mm. was just so powerful and he spoke seven languages and I was like oh my gosh this guy's so cool and also having someone from the midwest I thought that that was something that was going to be really powerful to hopefully you know win a presidential race I was like great uh millennial young person military veteran who speaks seven languages who understands complex policy this sounds like someone that could really be Donald Trump. Yeah, that's That's, awesome. Pete knew that everything is like dominoes. So even if you change, if you change something in infrastructure, something will change with the climate and, and something will change with the labor force and everything was inherently intertwined and like redlining. So infrastructure also has to do with racial justice and women's equality and, you know, X, Y, Z, like everything is interrelated. And I always saw that when Pete was speaking, like anytime wow. he spoke about policy, you could tell that he was connecting, like he was doing all the math, you know, like when you see someone in a movie and they like write out a bunch of numbers over their head. Yeah. <laughs> that's like totally what I pictured Pete doing when it came to including policy in everything, because if you read his climate policy, it was also half of his infrastructure policy. It was also Mm. half of his like youth equality policy. Like they were all inherently intertwined and they all had points that were the same because he knew that they were all related. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm obsessed. I didn't really give Pete a chance. I'm going to be so real with you. What? It's okay. I get it. I got, I got that a lot from my friends. <laughs> Look, I was just like, I just, I don't know. I, I've, I've always considered myself like a semi-informed voter. I really wanted to see a female president. And so I yeah. kind of honed in on Elizabeth Warren a lot. Mm. And, and, you know, um, Vice President Harris as well. But 
I was really mm-hmm. into Elizabeth Warren, but I feel like I did myself a bit of a disservice because I just, you're really inspiring me to actually do a lot more research. <laughs> I was, I was like, I want a woman, you know what I mean? Which mm-hmm. is, yeah. which is, which is fair, but also yeah, absolutely not necessarily. I don't know. We also aligned a lot on everything, but still, still, still. But anyway, yeah. that mean, makes we, a lot of sense. It was such a big field of candidates. Like it was just so hard to like really like find the one that you want because they were all really, really good. Mm-hmm. I think I think you just gotta ha- or you just had to find one that you really connected with in one way or another. You know, yep. Jonah, for you, it was like you really wanted to see a woman president. For mm-hmm. me, I latched onto Andrew Yang because he's Asian. I'm like, this is awesome. I would love to see an Asian president. Mm-hmm. I also loved his his mm-hmm. universal basic income or, you know, the freedom dividend idea. Um, mm-hmm. Just as much as, you know, Noel with you, you latched onto Pete for all those reasons. So, mm-hmm. yeah, Jonah, I, I, you know, don't beat yourself up too much on that no, because yeah. there are so many people to pick from and you had to pick one in one way or another. Yeah, yeah. very yeah. true. It's really hard. There was such like a waterfall of information about everyone and everything. Like I thought it was, it was like a full-time job. I yeah. felt like it was a full-time job just to research the candidates. Like oh, even yeah. before I jumped on a campaign, like I, <laughs> I was like, Whoa, there are so many people here. Like when we were at the fish fry, I mean, I had already picked <laughs> Pete at that point, but I was like listening to everyone's stump speech from, you know, Beto to Tulsi and I was like oh my gosh there are so many people here and Kamala and and then Jamie Harrison who then ran for senate was also there so we heard his stump speech and I was like oh my gosh like there are just so many candidates that care about so many things and all of these things are important but like you know how do you pick you just got to prioritize. So Yeah. I remember when all of the candidates came and everybody was like, are you guys kidding me? This is you're you're actually hindering this because there's too many candidates. Do you feel like that was the case? Mm. I don't know. I mean, I think the fact that we won now makes me feel like, no, like it was actually OK. But at the yeah. time, I felt really stressed about it. I was like, oh, my gosh, we can't focus enough on one candidate. How do we, you know, create a national strategy when there are a million candidates. And I think I especially felt that pressure between the Iowa caucuses happening and Super Tuesday. Mm. Because typically after Iowa and New Hampshire, you you know who the presidential candidates are mm-hmm. going to be. But at that point, you know, New Hampshire happened. We still didn't know about Iowa. So there was like a weird kind of like tripping over ourselves effect that I was just like very stressed about as an organizer. And I mean, I can obviously only speak to about like how I felt about it. I was really stressed, but I think in the end it was really okay. You said something very interesting. Cause like after Iowa and after New Hampshire, you typically know who the president's going to be or who the final candidate's going to be. But Iowa, mm-hmm. it was Pete that won. And then Bernie was pretty mm-hmm. close behind him. And Joe was like mm-hmm. maybe fourth or fifth or something like that. So yeah. after Iowa, and winning the caucus with Pete, like this, you know, he wasn't a top contender probably until then. What was that like, you know, knowing that he won the Iowa caucus? It was really stressful. <laughs> um, <laughs> my friends and volunteers and I, we were all in in a bar that night and we stayed there until 2 a.m. Like, like we were there and sold that place closed. And we were just watching and watching and watching and watching. And then finally we get a call and they're like, we won. It was maybe like one or two in the morning. They were like, we won. We know we won. And we were like, what do you mean? No one's calling it. It's too close. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Which is honestly how the election in November felt. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It prepared me like the not knowing about the Iowa caucuses really prepared me for how I felt in November. Mm-hmm. I have a quick question just about campaigning. Um, what, mm-hmm. what, I mean, you kind of told us a little bit about like your job responsibilities, but is there anything that would really surprise people to know about primary campaigning? I guess I think the big difference, well, I mean, I only worked at general in the middle of a pandemic, so I'm sure this is different in non-pandemic years. Um, but the biggest difference for me was 
in the primary, it was really weird being around a bunch of other like democratic organizers that were against you. Not that there was anything wrong with it, but it was weird, you know, like going to the local democratic meetings sometimes. And then there'd be like nine representatives from other candidates and, um, and they're all, you know, making the case for their own candidates and people weren't all always nice, but there were so many, there were just so many. Well, you have a ton of candidates. I never yeah. thought of that. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, you're you're all essentially on the same team, but there's like infighting. Yeah. I guess there's still competition. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like you all want the same things, and I think that was like we all got along. Like we, for the most part, we all knew each other. Like I knew who the Biden organizer was for my territory. I knew who the Warren organizer was. I knew the Yang organizers. I knew the Marianne organizer, Amy, Tulsi, the Bernie organizer. I knew. Mm-hmm. yeah all the all the regulars though like we all we all knew each other yeah it's not like we hung out all the time i know there were other areas of like other states like they, they would call it friendship 2020 so most of them like had group chats and they'd be like ah yeah i'm going to this event you going to that event and they're like oh yeah yeah i'll see you there so everyone mm-hmm. knew each other because we were all at the same things because yeah at the end of the day like organizers you go to a lot of community events there are only so many community events you can go to yeah, <laughs> yeah. so you I, see each other all the time i'm like an i was envisioning like uh west side story everybody's rolling up from different <laughs> angles snapping their hair grease back but sometimes it felt like that yeah. sometimes it felt like <laughs> sometimes it felt like that we were all about to like break out into song and dance and be like my candidate's <laughs> better can you can you give us the hot goss like who were the best like candidate staffers to like work with and who were the ones that you were like i don't want to deal with you ever oh i don't i don't know if i can drop the hot tea (laughs) um i will say the best people to work with were definitely warren they were always nice they were always kind always courteous always respectful and then during the general, I will say like the Warren and the Kamala people and the Pete staffers and the Biden staffers, like we all just got along so well. And the Warren staffers were trained just, they were so good at their jobs. They mm. were really, really good. Let's let's switch gears here and talk about like, I'm very curious. So obviously Pete dropped out of the race. Mm-hmm. What What was that like? Um, I mean, it was heartbreaking in a lot of ways because, you know, you're putting 80 hour work weeks into a campaign and giving your heart and soul and everything into a campaign. And then he's like, you know what, it's it's over. It's my time to step and bow out. And it hurt. It hurt in a lot of ways. Um, We were we were definitely crying, but I think it was. I was actually just talking to some of my friends we were that were all on the Pete campaign. We were talking about this because the anniversary of it was a couple of days ago. Mm. We were like, oh man, do you remember when you got the call? And we were all like, yeah, I remember when I got the call. And we were like talking about where we all were. Um, so I was with my supervisor and one of my colleagues and we were in the field office um, in Columbia. And we had just... Um, we just finished cleaning the office because we, a couple of friends and I were going to drive up to Charlotte and door knock the next day mm. um, for Super Tuesday. So we were like, oh, we're only an hour and a half away from North Carolina. We'll go knock doors in North Carolina, um, be there for as long as they need us because we were like, oh, we'll just do this to volunteer because we didn't need to be there. We were waiting for assignments on what state they would send us to next because after your primary campaign is over so like for example the iowa staffers a lot of the iowa staffers for pete and biden came to south carolina Oh, okay some of them get sent to new hampshire some of them get sent to nevada but then once yours is over then you get sent to the next state and the next state gotcha like and, the primary is very strange <laughs> yeah and can you remind me what was the outcome of the south carolina primary uh it was oh my gosh i blacked out the order of everything um but biden won <laughs> okay okay 
So that was already heartbreaking as it was for you guys. And then now you had to move on to somewhere else while you waited to figure out where to go. Yes. It had been about a day since we had found out that Biden just swept the South Carolina primary. It was not a competition. In all honesty, it really didn't matter who came in second in South Carolina. Biden had a commanding, commanding win in South Carolina. Um, So, yeah, so we... We're cleaning up the field office, waiting to find out where we might get set next. Um, I was about to get in my car and drive to North Carolina to knock doors for Super Tuesday. But then we got an email and it was like, hey, all staff call in 30 minutes. We were like, oh, what does that mean? And somebody else that was there that had worked on campaigns previously and they kind of nodded their head and we kind of all looked around and we all kind of knew what that meant. And we were like, okay, all staff call in 30 minutes. So we ordered some food um, and then sat in the office and waited. And then we all put like one computer up to watch the zoom. And we listened to our campaign director, Mike Schmuel do an introduction. And then they told us that Pete was going to assist his campaign. And he was, he had turned around a plane to go back to South Bend to announce that he was going to drop out. And we're like, okay. We all thought it kind of meant that the end of the primary was coming and that we were going to get a candidate. Like we, we, Hmm. everyone was going to like kind of rally behind Biden. And then that, that night when Pete endorsed Biden, um, Amy and Beto also endorsed Biden. And then it was like a windfall of everyone endorsing Biden. We were like, okay, we have our marching orders. This is what we got to do. It's time to time to go. Time to work for Biden. Dang. Yeah, it's like all this work and now it's over. Yeah, it was a really weird feeling. But I think we all just really had a lot of respect for what we had done. And it was it was really bittersweet. We were like, oh, oh. sad that it's over, but proud of what we did. Um, and we knew that it wasn't over yet. So we were like, okay. Gotta keep going. <laughs> Gotta keep working. You went from Pete to Joe. How how did that happen? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously because um, Joe was the only choice <laughs> left. But like, you know, mm-hmm. did 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 you know did Pete say, "All right, everyone go work for Joe," or did Joe's people say, "Like, all right, everyone come over here"? What, what I guess what was that like? I don't know. It's kind of a it's a weird process. It's kind of like an unspoken thing, though that if you're working on somebody else's primary campaign and you want to work for the, for the big party candidate, you know, you already have experience in doing exactly what they need people to do because by the time the general comes around, you're working in quadruple the States that you were working in for the primary. Cause most primary campaigns, you only have staff in four States and then a national national staff. So you have Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina, the, the big four. But for the general, you've got, oh, my God, (laughs) Arizona, Wisconsin, Texas, Florida, Georgia. um, Oh, my gosh. This is honestly good for me, but I can't name all the swing states because I could probably do it in like 10 seconds in November. Uh, Yeah, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Texas, well, the Kentucky um, and the other big Senate races. So Colorado. Um, but you're staffing so many more states, mm-hmm. so you need people. So if you really want to just like send in your application and then campaigning world is really, really small. So usually they do like a big list serve, like an email list serve. Um, they're like, Hey, like I just got hired in this state. If you want to work in this state too, send me your resume mm. and then X, Y, Z. And then, you know, magically you know 30 people get hired all in one like one big wave and that's kind of what happened for florida so then we had a beautiful mix of friendship 2020 for florida where everyone was just kind of working together i I guess everyone ended their campaigns at almost around the same time so he's gotta Mm -hmm. hitch on to, to joe now because he was the the candidate yeah and i mean the process takes a while too like we didn't I didn't get I didn't get brought on till yeah, end of June, early July. So it, it, it took a while. 
And so, you know, obviously it wasn't a choice that you had to go work for Joe at that point because he was the remaining candidate. But like, obviously, you didn't choose him to be in with like he wasn't your 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 person like you didn't work with him from Mm -hmm. the beginning. But, you know, how did you feel about working for Joe at that point? Yeah, um, I will say like a lot of primary campaign staffers don't go on to the general. So Mm. everyone makes a really conscious choice that they're like, no, I'm going to join the general campaign staff. So you don't have to. Um, It feels like the obvious next step. And a lot of people do it, but not everyone. So, I mean, like I knew quite a few people that didn't end up joining the general campaign. And, you know, it was like no hard feelings because everyone's just kind of doing their own thing. Because once you're done with your primary candidate, your contract's over, you know, you can do whatever you want. (laughs) We're all adults. Um, but honestly, Biden was my second choice. So Mm. I was really fired up, ready to go. I felt like we had gotten our marching orders from Pete. The second he announced that he was going to endorse Biden almost immediately after dropping out, he was like, it felt like, you know, we knew what we had to do. So I was like, you know what, this is what Pete's telling us to do. He's a much smarter man than I am. Let's go. Let's do this. And I really wanted Donald Trump out of office. So I was like, I felt like it was, it was something I just had to do. Mm -hmm. I was like, I I can't, I can't stop now. We're not done. That's a good point. You know, you, you have such faith in your candidate that if they tell you, you know, maybe you should endorse and go for this person. You would, you would do that. Mm -hmm. It obviously like it worked, like look at where we are now, but Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's crazy that, you know, it, it, it's all, it's so much work that we don't realize that happens and, you know, such coordination. But the biggest thing that I'm hearing with, with campaigning, um, and being a, a, a campaign staffer is that it's, it's all a community. It's a big, big community, no matter who it is that you are campaigning for. Absolutely. 100%. It's a huge community. And I've known, well, I should, I shouldn't say huge because now, like after doing the primary general general cycle, it felt like a really small world when I was kind of watching the states roll in and being like, oh, well, I know someone that was on the Amy McGrath campaign and I know someone that was in Alaska and I know someone that was in Minnesota and Wisconsin and other parts of Florida and Georgia um, and the Jamie Harrison campaign and so you kind of know everyone everywhere because everyone, like like I said, not everyone does the same thing. They don't all jump onto the general in the same places. Um, Ohio, um, I had a lot of friends there. And one of my best friends from college is from Ohio. So I would send her updates and be like, hey, this is what Ohio's doing. You should go support them. <laughs> um, but everyone was all over. So it felt like a it's a small, tight-knit community once you get into it because everyone knows everyone. Okay, so let's switch gears here um, and talk about going from the primaries to the general election. So what mm-hmm. what were some of the biggest differences between, you know, campaign work in the primaries and then campaign work in the in, in the general election? Um, well, I mean, the biggest one was I was now managing a team of people that were doing the job that I was doing in the primary. But it was also my first time managing as a young professional. So... I was having growing pains of trying to figure out how to be a manager and how to manage people. And it also was horrible because we were all virtual. When we started back in April, we were all like, okay, two more weeks and two more weeks. Maybe you'll move down to Florida because I was prepared that I would probably need to move to Florida at any given moment. And I was like, okay, um, all right, I'll be there whenever you need me. Um, But I also have really severe asthma. So I was like, I'd really love to like not be in person if we don't have to be in person. Two more weeks turned into a month and then never. So by the time we hit November, it was completely optional for us to be in person. You know, so my friends and I were like, you know what would be really fun? Us to all live in the same apartment for the last month of the campaign, just in case the campaign needs us for any like events or just in case we need to do any logistical things like if anything happened, I didn't not want to be in the state of Florida to be able to help my team. 
I guess the big question, and I don't know if this is too generic of a question or too broad of a question, but what what was election night mm-hmm. and what was um, also what was victory night like? Election night was. I was really tired. I'll say that for sure, because I woke up at like 4 a.m., 3 a.m. that day um, to start getting everything ready and make sure that everyone's going to be at the right polling locations, that all my team was ready, though. All the volunteers had everything that they needed to do, um, squared away all the information that they needed. But that night, obviously, they called the state of Florida and it was not in our favor. But we got a call. Hi, we're not going to be winning the state of Florida tonight. So I then had to call my team and tell them we weren't going to win Florida. And that really hurt. That was probably the hardest thing. And one of the hardest things I'll ever have to do in my life. It was so heartbreaking to tell a team that had worked endless hours. And so many of them grew up in Miami. These were their neighborhoods. These were their friends. These, this was their family to tell them we didn't win. It hurt so bad. And I I didn't want to be the one to have to tell them. Um, I just wanted to be able to say, like, we won, you know. But it was, you know, it was the truth of the night. You know, we, we didn't win Florida. And that we were ready to kind of say, okay, um, well, we didn't win Florida. But, you know, it's not over yet. I was there. Um, we were in an apartment or my supervisor's apartment with all of my other colleagues. So we all had to make those calls that night. And it was really emotional. And us being all together and trying to feel like we had to keep it together for our teams, but then also, you know, kind of consoling in one another and just crying a lot and looking at the margins um, in our own areas. Because, you know, when you're watching results come in, if it's at like 2%, reporting or 8% reporting. Like if I would have gone off those numbers at 8%, um, I would have won my territory. And that definitely did not happen. I had a very Republican stronghold area. So that ended up pretty decisively going to Trump. But, But then one of my colleagues who was working in North Florida, she got a really great call that she had flipped that county from 2016. And she was in Tampa. That, that area was red in 2016 and it went blue in 2020. So, you know, we wanted to celebrate her. But at the same time, we were all really heart, heartbroken about our areas and the fact that we lost the whole state as a whole. So it was really bittersweet, really, really bittersweet. But also and then also knowing like we could still win the election. It was weird. It was a very weird feeling. And then victory night. Um, so we had heard the rumor that we might get sent to Georgia. So they were like, our supervisor was like, hey, you guys might want to pack your bags, pack up the Airbnb. And we were like, okay, like eight o'clock at night. They were like, hey, be in this city in Georgia at 8 a.m. And we were like, that's like a 12 hour drive. And they were like, yes. We were like, okay, we need to get in our cars immediately. So we throw, frantically throw everything that we had kind of half packed. <laughs> at that point oh my gosh this sounds so so intense i feel like i'm watching a movie it was really (laughs) intense we've like there might as well have been like a action movie theme montage song behind us because (laughs) it was such like a flurry of everything and everyone just being like oh that's my charger oh that's my laptop hey can you grab that oh like hey like blah 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 and like six of us all running around this apartment like mad people just trying like frantically gather all the things that from this place where we had been living for for a month (laughs) so we frantically threw everything in there and then drove up to georgia and then did trainings on zoom um for how to canvas ballots so then we were driving around georgia all day to talk to people who their um that their mail-in ballots were rejected but we had steve kornacki on the entire drive to georgia and then we had finished and they still had not called it so we were like okay, what do we do? One of my colleagues and I, we were both living in South Carolina at the time. So we were like, okay, well, we are just going to drive home. So we started getting in the car and Steve Kornacki was still on full blast on our phone. And then they were finally prepared to call the race. So everyone pulls off to the side of the road and we all were just like, oh my God, we won. And it was just a lot of disbelief. A lot of, oh my God, this is real. This is happening. Like Donald Trump will no longer be president. Mm -hmm. 
President Biden and Vice President Harris will be the new president and vice president of the United States. A lot of crying, a lot of relief. I felt like a huge weight had been lifted off of my shoulders. And I just like started thinking about all the cool and amazing and great things that could be on the horizon. And we were like, wow, that happened. We did that. We helped that. So it was a huge sense of accomplishment, even though we lost Florida, because we felt like we had a huge like a part in that. I mean, it sounds like this whole experience campaigning for the, you know, the uh, primaries in general and everything that you've done (laughs) during and after has been so exciting and, you know, meaningful. But it also sounds like you all work so incredibly hard, especially during these times. So I'm curious during and after what everybody did as far as burnout, you know, because it sounds like <laughs> the, the emotions are going so high and so low and it's all over the place. So was self-care even a thing? I was pretty strict about my sleep schedule. Um, for the most part, I really, really tried to get eight hours whenever I could. That wasn't always the case, but I was try. I really, really tried to be strict with it. As campaign staffers, you take a lot of things really personally. So, you know, every time a bad poll comes out, every time a bad article about the campaign comes out and you're just like, you, you, we all really took it to heart, made us all really anxious. Um, is is really bad for my mental health. I'll be really honest. Um, I'm not shocked. It sounds so incredibly exhausting. We knew if we weren't going to do it, you know, like who would, that's how we all felt. So we were like, okay, well we got to keep doing this. And we, we, at least for me, like I was thinking about, you know, when I wanted to, you know, take a couple of minutes off, you're like, well, is the Trump campaign doing that? Are they taking an extra day off? And you never know. Yeah. Hmm. So we were like, well, we've, we've, we've got to win. So we got to do everything it takes to win. And that's it. That's it. That's it at the end of the day. And I was willing and prepared to do anything that I needed, that we needed to, to win. So I mean, with my team, I was really strict about water intake. Ooh, that's good. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, drink water. I didn't drink water, but I told them to drink water. <laughs> um, I got better about it, actually, as we got closer to the campaign, or, like, or as the end of the election. So, and now, now I drink a half gallon a day. Good. <laughs> I'm, pr- I'm pretty proud of that, but Love I told it. them every single day, and it was on the, the top of every single one of our morning reports it was like have you drank water today did you consume water are you going to drink water today great did you drink water and i always try to keep it fun on like morning calls and stuff and try to keep things as like lighthearted as i could and be like oh like what's your favorite color and on zoom since we had never met in person one day we talked about how tall everyone was like <laughs> you know just having those weird icebreaker questions because i really wanted our team environment I wanted everyone on my team to feel like they could come to me for anything, whether it was good, bad, um, campaign, non-campaign related. Um, they were struggling. They needed help. They were doing great. And I wanted to celebrate them. Anything yeah. like I wanted them to feel as comfortable and as like positive and or as not positive. Like if they if they needed help, like I was willing to be there for everything. And I wanted to be as transparent as I possibly could and be there for, for anything that they needed. So really trying to foster that environment with my team was my top priority. It sounds like you were probably a really wonderful manager, especially because you put the, you know, the needs of the folks who you're working with before anything else, because that's what matters. Mm-hmm. Well, I knew their, their job at the end of the day was much more important than I, mine. Because they were the ones that were interacting with voters all the time. They were the ones interacting with volunteers all the time. They were the they were on the front lines. So my job was to support them into anything that they needed. Wow. I wish a lot of other managers would remember <laughs> this for right. people who work directly with the public. Yeah, that was always my top priority. So I'm and I mean, I will say like my mental health taking a hit was probably a lot like i won't say a lot but like it was also kind of my fault because you know you go down the the rabbit hole if you go on the polar coaster you 
wake up every morning, you check the polls, you wake up every morning, you check the news, you watch the news all day, you see it on your computer, you see everything that's going on with Trump, you see everything that good or bad may be happening with our campaign, with Senate campaigns, with other states teams, with our team, like, it was just an overwhelming amount of information. (laughs) And I was like, oh my gosh, do I really have to consume all of this? Like after the kid. After the campaign, I was like, oh, my gosh, why did I why did I do that to myself? Like, I could have just kept myself in my little box, (laughs) just focused on what we were doing and just said, like, it is a okay." because I was stressing out about things that I had no control over. So. Absolutely. I mean, it's hard because it is so exciting and it's such a, you know, a monumental election and you're working your ass off and all of these things. I would probably go on that polar coaster myself. I feel like I was sort of on it from uh, the muggle sense over here. <laughs> now Jack and I are on the uh, Dogecoin coaster. Oh yeah, we're oh, going yeah. to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I feel like we just watched a cinematic thriller. Seriously. I'm not even kidding. I I can't imagine. I mean, I watched that AOC documentary, Bringing Down the House, I believe. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just watching that, I was like so shook at just how intense it is all the time, 24-7, always working. And so it sounds like that was no fiction. That was very much nonfiction, you know, for all people in, in uh, during election season. For sure. I've, I watched that documentary after the campaign. And I mean, I'm not the most progressive person when it comes to my pol- um, policies so he's <laughs> not necessarily like my favorite politician mm-hmm. but I definitely cried because I was like oh, oh I'm so proud of like her and her persevering through this campaign because good for her like she put in so much work and she's I have like nothing but respect for AOC because she represents her constituents in an accurate and mm-hmm. full mm-hmm. full manner like if you're representing your constituency and that's what your constituents want, that's being a good politician. Mm-hmm. So even though I don't agree with her, I was like, I respect you. That's is so beautiful to hear because I'm in love. So I love AOC so much. <laughs> I'm so down to ride forever, but I, I recognize that she's not a race cup of tea, but recognizing the hard work, dedication and um, you know, passion about serving the community. Mm-hmm. How can people? How can people sleep on that? I don't understand how people yeah. can just not recognize that all the time. Yeah, she grinds harder than anyone else. Yeah, oh, maybe yeah. not than everyone, but like a lot of people, really, really hard. Yeah, yeah. And her accessibility to making policy and politics in DC accessible to everyone because of how she talks to constituents and on social media, I think mm-hmm. is really, really important Yeah, to explain it to everyone because everyone should know how like all of this stuff works. Civics yeah. is so important. She's yes. a true millennial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They make it so convoluted and so confusing and so all, you know, it feels, you know, like it's not accessible to understand that. Yeah, I do appreciate that. We have a couple questions left for you, Noel, but I do have a quick one. You kind sure. of alluded to it. I know you are a former Republican and you mm-hmm. have now you have now campaigned with President Biden. And mm-hmm. so I'm just curious what created the switch, when the you know, when the switch happened, mm-hmm. why if you can give us just a little insight into that, I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I think being a former Republican and I don't I don't even like saying that I'm a former Republican because I really believe one day I would like to return to the Republican Party if they're willing to accept people like me, like of women of color and of a larger community that are that are accepting and that under that they understand that Republican policies and ideals aren't just for some and that they can truly be applied to benefit all people like i truly believe that but i don't think that most republican politicians right now are approaching it in a way that is accessible to the american people and that is beneficial to a lot of the american public 
Yeah. So one day I would really like to return if they're willing to accept. Yeah. If they're willing to accept those things and make policy to really benefit all of the American people and the American public. But growing up as a Republican, I think it really gave me a respect for the other side going into democratic politics, like especially during the primaries, because I think the view of Pete was that he was a really moderate candidate when in fact he was really like a super progressive candidate that was wrapped in what everyone pictured as a moderate candidate that spoke in ways that like made policy seem really moderate when in fact they were like really, really weren't. Um, (laughs) That's just kind of my opinion on it. That is so interesting because Okay, because um, on Facebook, aka where I get my politics, um, <laughs> a lot of people were like, Mayor Pete, you know, he is the definition of privilege, especially like, like even within the LGBTQ community, folks in the LGBTQ community were like, yep. oh, of course, he's our representative. He's white. He's Midwestern. He's blank, blank, blank. He's moderate. Like, this isn't a representation. And so I kind of fell into being like, oh, yeah, he's moderate. But I didn't really look into it. Yeah, I'll send you some of his policies, but he was definitely not moderate. <laughs> send me everything, Noel. I'm I'm I want it. I'm obsessed with him now. You've you've convinced me. But I think and Pete always talked about the future former Republicans was like, you know, welcoming people into the big tent of the Democratic Party and saying, okay, well, these are our morals and values. And it was always coming from a place of morals and values. So how do we align on these morals and values? We agree on X, Y, Z things because this is what we believe and we want to be good people inherently. Mm -hmm. So how does that translate into policy? And I think a lot of times, you know, like Republicans like Republican voters in particular, they always want to do what they feel is best. Like everyone is always voting to, you know, do whatever they feel is best for, you know, themselves, other voters, and usually and typically America at large. Mm -hmm. So how do you convince someone that what they've always thought, because they always vote for Republicans, because that's just what they do, because that's, you know, the way that it's always been that those policies are actually harmful to them and they actually believe something that they didn't think they did because of the morals and values behind policies. Mm. So, and it was, I really, and I always told my team this too. I was like, you're, you can't bash Republicans. Like you, you can't do it. The whole point of a general election is to convince people from the other party that may not vote for your candidate to vote for your candidate in addition in addition to turning out democrats to making sure like the people that are going to vote for you vote but there's also the question of you know flipping votes mm. so you can't just be like oh trump sucks blah 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 like oh the republicans suck and they don't care about the united states and xyz and i mean yeah, some of that may be true sometimes, but everyone always just wants to do what's best for the United States. Mm-hmm. They don't agree about the way to get there, but you always have to have a respect for people to be able to talk to them. Because if you're talking to someone and being like, yeah, everything you know and believe sucks and you're wrong about everything, no one's going to talk to you about that. They're going to get really combative and defensive and be like, no, this is what I believe. This is what I feel really strongly about like you should never talk to someone that way because why why would they ever give you the light of day to listen to what you have to say you're not going to convince anyone you're not going to change any hearts and minds by telling someone all the reasons that they're wrong Mm, you can't do that for anything so why is politics any different damn noel whoa i think the way that you're phrasing this too is like so beautiful because we all do even if we don't always agree we all do want to do community work or we i would hope we would so that's a beautiful way of looking at it yeah. yeah i think we've just forgotten what the republican party has looked like because the last four years have been trump's republican party which is yeah. not the republican party a hundred percent jack yes perfect yeah that's, that's eloquent. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly how i felt about it too because like i joined when i first went to college i joined the young republicans club mm-hmm. but when i looked around and sat down i was like oh man 
I'm the only woman here other than the club president. Was and, it mainly white people? And then I noticed that I was the only person. Okay. Of color. Yeah. And I was like, Ooh, the only way like that I see it, that it stops becoming Trump's Republican party is starting to talk to people on the issues. Mm-hmm. Boom. Snaps to that. Mm. I got chills. Noelle. Um, Noelle, if anyone wanted to follow you, what, where, where would they be able to do that? Well, <laughs> the best place to do it are probably Instagram and Twitter. I don't really drop my, too many hot takes on either of them, <laughs> but it's just at Noelle Swords on Twitter and then at Noelle Swords 23 on Instagram. All right. All right. And how do you spell that? N-O-E-L-L-E-S-O-R-I-C-H. The final question for you, Noelle, and we do appreciate your time so much. Uh, and this has like been such a riveting like experience. I feel like I was there, but uh, <laughs> outside of what we're talking about today, what is one thing you don't know how to do that you would like to learn how to do? Ooh, what a great question. Um, what I would like to learn. I mean, I feel like I want, like the first thing that I think about is I'm not, good at the languages that I learned <laughs> and I would like to be better at them because I studied Arabic and French for four years but I can barely say anything in either of them yeah which is unfortunate because I was so deep in campaign work that I just never had to time to practice it and just yeah. lost it immediately you have to be immersed in the in like that language too mm -hmm. yes i was supposed to study abroad in morocco which is supposed to kind of be the Whoa. best of both worlds and it got canceled oh. like a month before i was supposed to leave oh no so, uh, i went to so india for two weeks which was great but it didn't help me with my languages at all <laughs> you're like you learned something else you're like cool yeah. unrelated uh but yeah i'll go there <laughs> yeah 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 exactly so refine these languages that yes. you have already started to learn so it sounds like you are already working on this which is awesome Yes. Yeah, I just got to dedicate time to it. Yeah. Which easier said than done. Noelle, thank you so much for being on. Uh, we really appreciate your time. We really appreciate you dropping all your knowledge and experience on the campaign trail. Yeah, thank you so much. And we'll have you back. Uh, I know we have a lot of listener questions, so uh, we will be reaching out to folks and we'll, ha we'll see you soon, Noelle. Sounds good. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe and share with your friends. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at who knows we don't pod. Send us a message with what topics you're interested in hearing more about. And if you want to be on the podcast, we'd love to have you on. Drop us a line. Love you, baby. Love you. <laughs> <laughs>